Since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The second letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. How am I doing? Am I coming through? Are we going to? Okay. It's all right. We've got to back up. Praise the Lord. Well, before St. Paul arrived at the Macedonian city of Thessalonica, he had made a visit to Philippi, another city in Macedonia, modern-day Greece. And as you'll remember from Acts 16, Paul had at first intended to go elsewhere, but received a vision of a Macedonian standing there, we read, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So in response to that cry for help, Paul and his companions make their way to Philippi. Upon arriving, they evangelize a group of women down by the river, famously including Lydia. You remember the seller of purple goods? But as they made their way proclaiming the gospel, they began to be followed by a possessed slave girl who is being used by her owners to tell fortunes. Paul found cause to liberate her from her demonic masters, for which he and Silas were rewarded by being publicly stripped, beaten with rods, and thrown into prison. Do you know what Paul and Silas did while they were in prison? They sang hymns. And in the midst of their worship, God vindicated his ambassadors his apostles, and threw open their cell doors with an earthquake, we read in the scriptures, that shook the prison to its foundations. Now, do you know what they did with that miraculous freedom? They converted their jailer. Poor guy was ready to take his own life when he saw that the cells were empty. But Paul stopped him. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here, he said. And their captor became their brother. It's immediately following this experience in Philippi that Paul comes to Thessalonica, where instead of Roman persecution, they encounter resistance from their own people, from the leaders of the local synagogue. This resistance eventually forces them out of Thessalonica, though not before establishing a small group of believers, as we read in Acts 17.4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. It was to this small island of converts in an ocean of Roman paganism that Paul writes to in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, addressing them with all the concern of a father who is forced to abruptly leave his children behind, as we hear in 1 Thessalonians 3.5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
But by the time Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, to which I would draw your attention this morning, page 989 of your pew Bibles, it seems Timothy has been able to return with a good report, such that Paul can write in verse 4 of our passage this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Parents, I have a question for you this morning. Have you ever had the unique experience of watching one of your children suffer from afar? Both of our kids, Jack and Charlotte, uh, contracted jaundice soon after being born. Hopefully third time's the charm with our little boy on the way. Lord, if it please you, maybe no jaundice this time. But on top of jaundice, Jack was premature and had to spend a week, a week in the NICU. I remember watching my little baby boy from the other side of the plastic box that they lay them in. And I remember seeing his little body writhe and cry so pitifully when they would strap him to the Billy Rubin lights to get that jaundice out of his system. I'd sit by his side and read to him scripture about John the Baptist for whom he is named but it was truly torture for all of us. I came into a new experience of anguish the first week of my son's life. St. Paul similarly was separated from his children, so to speak, trapped in Corinth, furiously writing letters to the fledgling congregation he had left behind in Thessalonica. For besides the spiritual dangers they faced as new Christians, they were also, we see, being persecuted by their own countrymen. A situation that must have been especially distressing for the apostle who wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight of the constant anxiety he felt for all the churches. For you know how like a father with his children, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, 11, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And it was for this kingdom, he later writes in 2 Thessalonians, that they were suffering. Suffering for the kingdom of God. On May 12, 2022, during Eastertide, a 19-year-old college student in Sokoto, Nigeria, named Deborah Samuel Yakubu, was stoned to death and her body burned by a mob of her classmates. The claim was that this Christian teenage girl in the Muslim-dominated north of Nigeria had committed blasphemy when she thanked Jesus for helping her pass her exams on the school's WhatsApp chat. During the outrage that followed, she was given many chances to retract her statement. But like all the saints before her, she remained steadfast and faithful to her death. How can it be that God would allow such cruelty against his people? The believers in Thessalonica would be forgiven for asking the same question, a concern that St. Paul anticipates when he writes there in verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also 
suffering. He says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What is the evidence? We find the antecedent back in verse 4. Their steadfastness and faith. This is the evidence, the sign, the plain indication of the righteous judgment of God. Our minds should go to Philippians 1.27, or St. Paul would later write to the church in Philippi, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. The courage and endurance of the saints is a sign to their opponents and indeed to the powers and principalities that are spurring them on that a day is coming. A day is coming when all things will be set right. And so the endurance itself as a sign of their eventual victory in the midst of their struggle becomes a cause, a paradoxical cause for rejoicing. In Acts chapter 5, the opponents of the gospel, once again through the, the apostles in prison, though by daybreak the officials found them preaching again in the temple. Sure it's hard to keep those guys in jail, isn't it? So they drag them into court and tell them, we told you to quit using that name. To which Peter says, oh, you mean Jesus. <laughs> the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So they beat them and tossed them out. And the scripture says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day back in that temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Beloved, when was the last time you rejoiced to suffer dishonor for the name? When was the last time I rejoiced to suffer dishonor for the name? The example of the apostles seems to suggest it's something worth rejoicing over. If that is not immediately apparent to us, the error might be with us and not with the apostles. Now, in these United States, in the year of our Lord, 2022, we aren't getting stoned and burned in the street for mentioning the Lord in the group chat. Rather, there is a sense in which the onslaught has gone underground. Somehow the devil in this country has, a found, has found a way of getting our souls without even touching our bodies. In this way, it's a bloodless victory for our adversary, which makes sense since the last thing he wants us to do is remember the blood. The blood applied to the lentils with hyssop, the bitter herbs and the fastening of the belt, the unleavened bread that we still break. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. And remembering the blood that he doesn't want us to remember, remembering the gospel means inevitably remembering reality, that there are real consequences to the choices we make, that being outside the light of Goshen means remaining in the darkness of Egypt. There's no middle ground. 
for those who refuse to know God as He has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, for those who do not, yes, obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, there is simply no other sacrifice for sins, no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's not fun talking about hell. That's why a lot of preachers avoid it. It's been that way for a long time, in fact. About 17 centuries ago, St. John Chrysostom preached in one of his homilies on Romans, quote, For God is merciful and patient. That is why he issues warnings and doesn't immediately cast us in hell. For I don't desire, he says, the death of a sinner. These words have no meaning, however, if sinners never die. And I know indeed that there is nothing less pleasant to you than these words. But he goes on to say, we must nevertheless, quote, continually discuss these things. For to remember hell prevents our falling into hell. The gospel contains many comfortable words. Our liturgy will repeat some of them after the confession and absolution. But before we can hear the comfortable words... We must bear the uncomfortable words. That those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Consider that phrase, the glory of his might. It is this glorious might that upholds us in which we live and move and have our being. It holds us together. It animates us. It pulls the air in. It sends it back out. It draws the blood in, pumps it back out every second of every day. In many ways, we are like children, blissfully unaware of the rain we enjoy, freely falling on both the just and the unjust. Those things about life that you find beautiful, mesmerizing, worth living and dying for, even if you don't really associate them with religion or Christianity in your mind, where do you suppose that beauty and truth and goodness came from? And what do you think is left for those who want to breathe, but not His oxygen? Who want to drink, who are thirsty, but not from His water? Do you see why He calls it eternal destruction? Why is that? If you want to enter the pasture and there's only one gate, guess what? You have to enter through that gate. If you're thirsty and there's only one well in town, guess what? You have to draw water from that well. But here's the thing. He won't even make you pay for it. What does it say in Isaiah 55? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. It's just ridiculous. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Beloved, it is that simple. Did you hear the invitation in our Old Testament passage this morning, Isaiah 1.18? This is God talking. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I know they're like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. 
if you are willing and obedient, which seems like the hardest thing to do in this country, if you are obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel like everyone else, you shall be eaten by the sword. Do you see the play on words? If you are obedient, you shall eat the good. If you rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For the steadfast and faithful, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Lord will consider it just to grant relief to those afflicted for his name. Even the underground affliction of the Spirit. Hidden in Christ like Noah's family in the ark, they will survive the wrath to come. But the ones doing the afflicting, or the ones who make their living and base their existence on the system of affliction, those living in unrepentant sin, they will be repaid with affliction. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire. Now the world, and a lot of churches in this world, would politely omit such an indelicate, uncouth proclamation. But as followers of the Creator, we traffic in reality, in real consequences for real decisions. All right, so speaking about consequences, let me tell you a story about consequences. My family has a history of tooth decay. We got bad teeth, probably because we sailed over from those British Isles. No offense to any, any Brits. So as a kid, I had some cavities. In particular, I got these big silver fillings in a pair of my molars in the back of my mouth. thought they were pretty cool at the time. Um, fast forward a couple decades, I started smoking a pipe. I am a C.S. Lewis Anglican, after all. Um, and when I would puff on that pipe, do you know where the stem would rest in my mouth? Right on those molars. And they're 20-year-old fillings. So I, I quit smoking a while back, um, thanks be to God, but my teeth kept hurting. So when I couldn't use COVID as an excuse anymore, I went to go see a dentist. And that dentist had found that those molars had basically disintegrated. Um, one of them was almost split in two. So you know what they had to do? They had to shave down those teeth and put a pair of expensive pearly white crowns on top, all because of my stupidity. Consequences are real. Did God destroy my molars? No, I did. Because I was being stupid. I wasn't paying attention. For the steadfast and faithful, like the Christians in Thessalonica, like Deborah Samuel Yakubu, the revealing of Jesus Christ will bring relief. It's going to come. Hold on. <laughs> But for their unrepentant tormentors and all those who place their bets on this world instead of Christ, it will mean separation from his glorious might. It will mean eternal destruction. Yes, it will mean hell. Now, St. Paul didn't write this to the Thessalonians as like a cruel judge. 
He wasn't gleeful at the thought of his enemy's destruction, although people try to paint Paul like that. Remember, this is the apostle who went to Macedonia to answer a cry for help from a Gentile who did not hesitate to share the gospel with anyone on any location of the social ladder, who did not condemn his tormentors but stopped them from hurting themselves and converted them with every opportunity he could find, who, like the Messiah, who never stopped reasoning with the Pharisees, Paul argued from the scriptures for Jews or from pagan poets for Athenians. Almost like he's imitating the God who says in Isaiah 1, Come now, let us reason together. Do you begin to see? The apostle who said in Romans 9 that he could wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his kinsmen, the same kinsmen who hounded him out of Thessalonica. Neither Paul's gospel nor the God of that gospel have any desire to condemn anyone. Don't hear me saying that we want anyone to be condemned. In fact, Scripture literally says the opposite. As we read in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All. He wants all to reach repentance, and none to perish. Whether we realize it or not, the tarrying of our Lord is His patience. We are the unwitting beneficiaries of the patience of God. That's what this life is. <laughs> it's your chance to avail yourself of the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. So as I close, let our prayer be the same as the one Paul offered for the Thessalonians in verse 11. That our God may make us worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.